0: Welcome to the Path 11 Podcast. I am your host, April Hanna. I am also the co-founder of Path 11 Productions. And aside from podcasting, we also make great films and documentaries, which can be found at path11productions.com. We have a special promo code just for our podcast listeners. The promo code is PATH11PODCAST, and if you go to our website, PATH11Productions.com, and visit our shop page, put that promo code in, and you will receive 50% off of our Evolution DVD, which is the third film in our PATH Trilogy series. If you would like to become a sponsor of the PATH11 Podcast, please email me at info at 11 productionscom And now for this week's show... Today I am joined with Greg Marcus. Ph.D. is an innovator Musar Maven and the creator of American Musar, a 21st century spiritual practice for an authentic and meaningful life. He is a graduate of the Musar Institute's facilitator training program and has been practicing and teaching for five years. Greg offers guidance on how to lead a life of mindful harmony and spiritual integrity, drawing upon timeless Jewish teachings and contemporary wisdom alike. He has a Ph.D. from MIT and worked for 10 years as a marketer in Silicon Valley. He also is the founder of AmericanMusar.com, and his latest book is the one that we're going to be speaking about today, The Spiritual Practice of Good Actions, Finding Balance Through the Soul's Traits of Musar, has been praised by rabbis, secular Jews, and people of all faiths for its inclusive and empowering introduction to this ancient wisdom. Welcome, Greg.
1: Thank you, April. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm really excited. Uh, When I was reading your book, I learned a lot, you know, about uh, Musar and I had no idea in the beginning of the book. I'm like, what is he talking about? And then you later went on to describe it. So um, it's been a great teaching for me and what I found and actually think that I'm probably going to be taking some of what you teach in the book into my mental health practice with some of my clients because I think that uh, there's some great teachings in the book as well. So um, I'd like you to begin in letting our listeners know how your life changed about 10 years ago.
1: Right. Well, about ten years ago, at the time, I was uh, a complete workaholic. You know, today I'm happy to say I'm a recovering workaholic. But I was um, working about ninety hours a week, and I thought I had like the ideal life, this great job, you know, great family, and I loved the job so much that I put so much of my myself into it. I, I. ended up working 90 hours a week. And that changed when I became the scapegoat for a product launch that went bad. Um, I was publicly humiliated by the president of the company. Uh, The next week, I went to a, a trade show and spent all day like tap dancing and telling customers how we were gonna have everything fixed and everything was gonna be taken care of. And then that night my grandmother died and I was so wrapped up in the work that I almost skipped her, almost skipped her funeral, which would have been uh, a horrible mistake. So it was in this state of mind that um, I went into Yom Kippur the following week, which is uh, the holiest day of the year in Ju- Judaism. And like many Jews, I don't go to work. I go to services all day. I don't eat or drink anything for 24 hours. And we reflect on our life and try to think about what we've done wrong, who we need to make amends with. You know, we try to. Uh, repent and and make resolutions for doing better in in the following year. So with all of this going on, at three in the afternoon, I I was tired, I was woozy, I was sitting by myself, and they were chanting the Torah in Hebrew. And I looked down at the translation, and a couple of words jumped out at me. It said, don't turn to idols or molten things. And my first thought, I have to say, was really dismissive. Um, I was thinking, oh my goodness, my life is falling apart, and we're starting in with this statues thing. I mean, what possible relevance could this have today? And then this phrase popped into my head. "Uh, You need to do what's best for the company. And it was like a quiet voice that was talking to me. And when I heard it, uh, my stomach clenched, and my palms got sweaty, And I started thinking, well, what is a company? What is a corporation? It's this amorphous thing. And my mind started going through this whole chain of connections. And I realized that I had turned my employer into a false idol. And because doing what's best for the company, that's like one of these rationalization phrases that we used for canceling projects or asking people to work weekends. And doing what's best for the company isn't doing what's best. You know, it wasn't what was best for me. It wasn't even what was best for the customers or the employees. And I decided that day I was going to realign myself with my values, with the values that I'd been raised with. And I was going to start putting people first, putting my health first, putting my um, you know, family first. And within a year, I had cut my hours by a third without changing jobs. Uh, nobody at work noticed but, my life at home became a real joy because I could be more present. I could spend time with them. And a year later, I cut my hours by a third again. And while I didn't realize it at the time, that day really set me on the the spiritual path that that took me to where I am today.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I really liked about your book, and I know that we'll get into it a little more in detail, is about just taking these small actions every single day. It's about these small steps that eventually lead to big changes. Um, And one of the things that I really liked in the beginning is that you really allow the reader to reflect upon their own soul. And even on your um, website, you give people an opportunity to take a quiz about learning about their different soul traits. So I was wondering if you, you can also talk about that
1: sure so if we think about um so there's there's two parts to what you're saying one is and that's very fundamental to moose our practice it's all about these small gradual changes that's the true path towards personal transformation and i kind of discovered this by accident when i was cutting back my hours so i would say you know my health is more important um, so I'm going to stop working at 9.30 so I can sleep. And then, oh, my wife is important, so I'll stop working at 9. And then my kids are important, so I'll stop working at 8. And gradually, over time, you know, those added up to really big changes. So when I learned about Musar, and it started talking about, um, you know, what Musar teaches is that we are souls. Like, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. But what the soul is, is something that's that's really hard to understand. Uh, people for thousands of years have been trying to figure this out. So what we do in Musar is we look at what are called soul traits. And soul traits are things like humility, honor, trust, order, awe. And having too much of a soul trait is just as bad as having too little. So uh, you tracking with me so far? Yeah. Okay, great. So um, let's look at a a soul trait like patience. Okay, well, if we have too little patience, uh, we're angry, we're frustrated, but if we have too much patience, uh, maybe we're staying in a bad job, we're staying in a bad relationship, um, we're not speaking up, we're not taking action when we should. And so what the soul trait quiz does is it gives you an opportunity to evaluate yourself. Where do you sit along the spectrum for 13 different soul traits? And then it creates like a little diagram which gives you an idea of of just like a little snapshot of where you, you think your soul is at at, uh, at this given point.
0: Yeah, and I'd like to read uh, to the listeners those 13 traits, just so they have an idea, too, of what would be um, assessed during this. And the traits that you talk about, and in part two of your book, you go through each of these individually, is humility, patience, enthusiasm, trust, loving kindness, truth, honor, gratitude, order, silence, equanimity, fear of consequences, awe of majesty. So, and the other thing that you had made mention is that many times when we are doing a self-assessment for ourselves, we often rate ourselves a little bit higher than maybe our friends or family looking in on us would say, and you gave an example of um, somebody in the book about patience, where they were rating themselves as being very patient, showed their wife, it might've even been you that you were giving an example of, and they were like, what are you talking about? You're not that patient
1: yeah as humans we are are notoriously bad at, at self-assessment uh, there's a famous uh, psychology study that was done where they asked people um, you know if they were an above average driver and 95 percent of people say that they're above average drivers you know so obviously that can't be true 50 percent have to be above average 50 percent have to be below average so we um, we aren't necessarily good at at um, Assessing where we are and one of the nice things about Musar is um, You know one is it's really nice if you have a community group so you can get some feedback from other people, but there are also stories and teachings from uh, From the literature that go back thousands of years which give benchmarks and real examples. It's like well, this is what balanced patience looks like and this is how You know, this is how we're supposed to show up with enthusiasm for things, to kind of give us some some benchmarks and some ideas about how we're supposed to act.
0: Also in the book, you talk about how we have four assumptions about the soul. And then from there, you move from assumptions into actions. So can you take our listeners through those four
1: assumptions? Yeah, so uh, part of the reason why I created assumptions was it was from my perspective. Background as a as a marketer, where we would create these financial forecasts, and the forecast would only hold true, if, you know, if these assumptions were true. So, you know, if it was a, like if I'm running a store, it might be okay. A hundred people come in an hour, and each person spends on average ten dollars, so uh, I'll make a thousand dollars an hour. So, um, and. You know, Judaism is a religion with lots and lots of teachings. You know, they go back thousands of years. And most people, whether you're Jewish or you're not Jewish, don't have a a detailed education on that. So rather than have to learn that whole backstory, I created assumptions. And maybe you agree with them, maybe you don't. But if you assume that they're true and just see where that takes you, it allows you to show up in the practice. So what these four assumptions are, are, one, we all have a divine spark, but it's occluded by our baggage. Two, we have free will, but it's not always accessible. Third is we are driven by a conflict between the good inclination and the evil inclination. And four is um, we all have the same soul traits, but we have different amounts of each.
0: And that's part of the soul evaluation that you provide the readers and what you have on your website is, you know, trying to find that balance, looking at the soul traits that you do have, maybe where the strengths are in certain, and then obviously trying to come back into that balance.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it gives like a very nice visual snapshot. And what you get is like a little spider diagram where you get these little spikes. And then in the middle, there's this, this dotted line there's like a circle right in the middle and that's sort of what represents our our divine spark so if your point for patience is way above the circle then that says okay well maybe i'm i'm too patient and if your point for truth is way below the circle then maybe it's okay i'm not i'm not truthful enough
0: yeah and i really loved um when you were writing about the divine spark and reading that it reminded me a lot of what i've read in the teachings of a course in miracles and they basically say the same thing just different verbiage but you know they talk about shining the light you know shining the light from within and that when you become that light and you're shining your light on your darkness that the darkness doesn't have the ability to hide and you kind of use the word spark and baggage So can you talk to people about what is that divine spark that truly is in all of us that ultimately, I think, somewhere along the line during our life path, we're all trying to find that spark, ignite it, grow it within ourselves so we can become more authentic to who we are?
1: Yeah, so you can look at this kind of, if you want to look kind of within the, and and thank you for making that comparison with the divine miracles, because these ideas are present in many different traditions. I think that they're all sort of converging on kind of a similar truth. I mean, what um, within the Jewish tradition, and this holds in the other religions like Christianity and Islam, you know, they say that Adam was created in the divine image. And it doesn't. It's not like a physical image. It's talking about that divine spark. We all have this point of goodness of being. Um, you know, being. A, you can think of it. If you're not sure about the divinity, you can think of it as your best self. You can think of it as that universal spark of humanity that we all have, and that when that is in control, and when we allow that to manifest, we show up as like an amazing person. But that's not all that we have. We also have our, our baggage. We have um, those hurts that have happened to us along the way, our disappointments, ways that we were raised, ways that we were socialized by the culture. And those, those tend to get in the way. And what Musar does is it helps us move the bags and let that light shine through.
0: Yeah. And in talking about moving from the assumptions to the actions, um, you know, I'd like us to take the listeners kind of as we travel through your book here about, you know, how it's really about practicing those small actions in order to make the change within the inner world of yourself.
1: Right. So one of the things that's that's really cool about Musar is you'll have like the rabbis laying out certain teachings where, you know, some medieval rabbi will talk about, you know, making changes is how you change your soul. And that's how you get lasting change. And then all of a sudden, here we are in the 21st century and the late 20th century where we look at neurobiology and we see that when we make changes, it rewires our brain and it creates new pathways and it leads to, to permanent change. So, you know, we can all be like amazing people as we're kind of sitting you know, sitting at the kitchen table and talking about what you should do. But it's what happens in the real world that that matters. It's how we show up and how we take action. And when we're working on a soul trait, what we'll do is we'll try to find one part of our life where we would like to make a change. You know, like, again, going back to the patient's example, and if I'm a really impatient person, I'm not suddenly going to going to become the Dalai Lama and become this super patient person. But I could pick one part of my life where I'm going to make one change. One of my students, and I share this story in the book, she uh, was a real rageaholic type driver. I mean, she was from the East Coast. She was uh, I live in California. She was always yelling at other drivers. And so she said, uh, so she told her family, I'm going to work on patience, and they all laughed at her and said, oh, good luck with that, Mom. And uh, So what she said is, okay, I'm going to let every car in in front of me. Every car that wants to merge, I'm just going to let them go go in front of me. So she told this to our group, and she came back two weeks later, said, so, you know, I am the most patient driver in California, Her drive was completely transformed. She just let people in. She started listening to the radio. She was humming along. She was relaxed and calm when she arrived home. And then she found herself becoming more patient in other parts of her life. So by just in two weeks making this one change, it was transformational and made a permanent change in in her life. And so then after that two weeks, we would move on to a new soul trait work on that for two weeks and then after you've gone through all 13 you cycle back and return to the first and each time you make another you you climb another rung in the ladder you have another opportunity to make a second change and and that's all does that make sense
0: Yeah, it does. And also kind of, you know, when you also talked in the book, how people even after like the first class that they take, or, you know, the first time that they're starting to take those small actions, that change really can be very immediate with this practice.
1: It can. It's sort of, um, it's sort of amazing when we start to just allow a little bit of calm and taking a, an honest look at our life um, and realize that we can make choices. You know that assumption that we have free will, but it's not always accessible. I mean, sometimes we just react to things or we act out of habit without thinking about it. And when we're reacting or acting out of habit, we're not accessing our free will. But I had one, the very first class I took, and um, we were talking about humility. Or I taught. I we were talking about humility, and all of a sudden one of the people said, okay, I'm going to show up differently in court. She was like going to small claims court the next day. And she had all these like traps set up for the other person. She's like, you know, I don't need to do all that. I'm just going to lay out what happened and not try to like make the other person look bad or really be inflammatory. And she suddenly her whole body calmed. And it was just this was from 45 after 45 minutes. It was incredible. It was amazing. We all had tears in our eyes. It was, it was wonderful to be, to be a part of seeing someone experience that.
0: You know, in reading this book, too, what I find in the Musar practice is one of the sayings, keep it simple. You know, mm-hmm. and and there's a simplicity about this that I feel um makes it even that much more accessible. It doesn't feel, you know, when you're reading this book that it feels overwhelming. Where do I begin? How do I start? This seems like that this is going to be a long journey. And I think I remember reading somewhere that if the brain when you set a goal, if the brain believes um if that it's going to take more than ten to twenty percent of effort, that usually that goal will fail because the brain has to be able to assess that um, you can approach the goal and it can be completed and there could be some sort of success with only about 10% effort.
1: (laughs) Wow. I've never heard that before, but I love that. That totally makes sense to me. You know, I say like people who I'm coaching or I'm working with, or um, I'll say, you know, you want to reach, but not stretch. You know, it's like I used to like take yoga classes and I'd be like, OK, the more agony I inflict on myself, the better. And now it's like, no, that's not what we want to do. I, body doesn't like agony. The mind doesn't like agony. It's um, it's about just getting a little bit of a comfortable reach. Just, you know, there's no growth in the comfort zone. So you have to do something. But taking one step is just fine. You don't need to try to leap the Grand Canyon.
0: Right, and the daily practice of this has three parts. There's meditation, mindful action, and journaling. And you also give an example, because many people will beat themselves up that they don't have a meditation practice. I know Deepak Chopra always says that if you say you don't have time to meditate, then you need to meditate like 20 extra minutes a day, (laughs) you know, but people in this world, are always trying to find the time, find the time. And in your book, you make it very simple and you say, just do two minutes and maybe you'll always stay at two minutes. Maybe you'll decide that your meditation practice will grow. But, you know, again, you give that very simple step. And, like you said, everybody can find two minutes. Um, And that's what made me think about that one quote that i had read about like the brain needing that goal to feel very small of only having to exert that 10 percent of effort in order to be a success and you know two minutes you're you're just asking me for two minutes of my day that feels very um doable
1: yeah and we try to make it even easier too because often we're meditating on like a particular phrase so we've been talking about patience a lot so we would be, so there's the different focus phrases or mantras that you can use. The one that I like is, "This too shall pass, and I have the strength to get by until it does." And the reason why we say that is because patience is really about being able to endure a an uncomfortable situation. You know if you don't if you don't get mad in traffic, you don't need patience, But if it drives you crazy, then that's where you need to, invoke patience to kind of help reduce the suffering you're going through and to help you get through it so you would write that phrase on like a sticky note or an index card um, and put it maybe in your your bathroom so you see it when you first get up in the morning or some people put it on their bed table or I have little mantra cards that you can buy with these you know with nice little designs to to see it and then you see that and you say okay and you just grab it you read it out loud for two minutes and and by doing that though, you frame your whole day like now you're sort of primed so that i'm going through my day and i'm looking around like oh oh hey i'm getting impatient right now hmm, oh boy i am uh just kind of sitting here and taking it and not saying anything and not doing anything and that's not good i need to be a little less patient does that make sense
0: yeah, it does make sense. And I was kind of wondering if you wouldn't mind maybe bringing us through what the daily practice would look like for uh, the trait of silence. Because I, f- I feel like we live in a very loud world. Yeah, And yeah. And how to be silent is, um, I think, a challenge with all of the stimulation that we have now. So if you were to use silence as an example, um, and I can kind of scroll through the book here i have it on pdf but um i know that in the part two of the book you know for our listeners in going through greg goes through all of these 13 traits and does give you an example of a mantra that you can use and examples of how to journal so uh, greg i don't know if you have the mantra for silence memorized but if you do i'd like you to take us through what silence would look like through somebody's day if they're working on that trait
1: Right. So, if I remember correctly, I believe the mantra I use is "nothing is better than silence." Is that correct? If you
0: give me a couple of minutes, I might be able to get there.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> well, let's assume it's "nothing is better than silence." That's okay. one of the. That's one of the uh, mantras. That's a really good one, and um, silence is really um, and and that's a great great thing to pick because it covers two things. It covers when to speak and not to speak. And it also has to do with internal silence. And so many of us, we get so overstimulated or stressful jobs or family situations or dating situations or whatever it might be. And then our mind is racing all the time. So silence is internal silence. And it's also when to speak and not to speak. You know, the, uh, the world, you know, the, the Torah, the Bible teaches that the world was created through speech. And when we speak, we are assisting the divine in that ongoing act of creation. So, when you speak up or when you don't, it has an incredible impact on impact on the world. So, I would start on the day um, with this two minutes of chanting or reading or speaking the the mantra. Um, so, I might say nothing is better than silence, nothing is better than silence, nothing is better than silence, nothing is better than silence. Or I might create a little tune, nothing is better than silence. But anyway, you know, I kind of do my thing. And then as I go through the day, I would think about, okay, well, what is an area where um, I want to uh, bring more silence? And one of my um, students, what she decided to do was she was going to leave the radio off in the car. And she described, um, after doing this for a few days, she noticed it was a really sunny day, and so she was driving on the neighborhood streets, and she rolled down the windows, and suddenly she could hear, you know, like birds singing, and she could just hear the wind, and she could hear the leaves blowing around. And she just felt, you know, this, this calm and this peace because she chose to just unplug from... Um, From the radio uh, while she was driving and we do these practices for two weeks at a time so that if a practice is a little bit uncomfortable we know that we don't need to to continue it but by sticking with it it really gives the soul an opportunity to adjust and then at at night what what we do is then we write about it in our journal so you would say oh i um I decided to turn off the radio and as I was listening, I heard the wind and that was really cool. Or, um, you know, I decided to speak out a little bit in a meeting. Usually I'm silent and just sit there ruminating and all the things. I did, and I, I asked the question, I decided to, to speak or, um, I might share something that you didn't do so well. It's like, Oh, you know, Someone started going on and on, and I just interrupted them and spoke over them, and I should have stayed silent and been more polite. So that's kind of what a, a day of Musar practice would look like.
0: And then the journaling aspect. So when people practice it during their day, um, what would be the journaling
1: component at night? So at night, you would you would write down like how the soul trade came up. So how was silence um, challenged for me during uh, during the day? Or what opportunities that I have for silence? And you would write about that. And it could just be a couple of sentences. It might be paragraphs. And journaling is hard for a lot of people. Um, some people are natural journalers. Others weren't. I was not a journaler until I started MUSAR, and it took me a little while to to get going. Uh, but it really helps. It really helps kind of cement and seal in and and notice and witness the the changes that are taking place and the, the challenges that remain.
0: And you also mentioned that Musar is about moving beyond your comfort zone. So when we're speaking about silence, what would you recommend for those introverts who are like, "Ooh, this one's going to be an easy one for me. I can be very silent, both internally and, you know, in my external world. But you actually would push people who maybe do practice more of silence
1: to speak out. So can you talk about that? Yeah, so that goes back to this idea that having too much of a soul trait uh, can be just as bad as having too little. So um, if you're too silent, you are missing an opportunity to kind of make the world a better place and to help other people with your your wisdom and knowledge. And so for someone who um, is very introverted, for them the challenge might be to Speak out more. It might be to initiate a conversation with an old friend who you haven't seen in a while. Maybe if you're in like the corporate world or something, and you're in a meeting and you're the person who never talks, well, you're in that meeting for a reason. Um, You're there because you have they invited you because you have something to contribute. So for you, the challenge might be to ask one question. And if you're too, too introverted or too shy to ask the question in front of other people, maybe for you the starting point is go up to someone after the meeting and ask the question one-on-one. But by taking that step outside the comfort zone, um, we, we bring our, our soul towards, towards balance.
0: Great. Thank you. And I probably should have asked this question more in the beginning and, uh, forgive me if I didn't, but I'd also like you to give just a little more background. You mentioned what Musar is, but it's based in the religion of Judaism. That's, is that correct?
1: Yes, that's right.
0: And how exactly, what's the story behind that? Like how did Musar come, come to be, and then come to be this teaching?
1: Right. So, um, there have been threads of Musa within Judaism for thousands of years. And the basic, um, you know, it's it's been almost like a countercultural thing, where there's been some people have said, hey, you just need to learn all the rules and regulations. And the other people that say, hey, you need to go beyond that and do acts of kindness and go beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. And the, it really started about a thousand years ago with a book called Uh, Duties of the Heart, which was written in the 11th century in Spain. And I have a copy of it on my shelf. And I think it's just personally, I think it is so cool that there is a book that was written hundreds of years before the printing press was, was invented, that we are still reading and is still relevant today. And in the introduction, he says, hey, look, there's some people who become rabbis who are kind of the teachers and leaders within Judaism. And they do that because it gives them a lot of status in the community. And they'll study for 25 years, but they'll never once look in the mirror and look at their own conduct. And I wanted a book, and this is what he said, I wanted to write a book that said, hey, how do we become kind of really exemplary, saintly people? You know, the modern word is this Yiddish word mensch. You know, it's a person of outstanding character. Maybe if you've seen Seinfeld or heard the word. And so we all have what it takes to be a mensch, to be this person of outstanding character, but we just need some lessons. We need a manual, and that's what Musar helps us do. So, um, yeah, so and then in the last thousand years, there have been various uh, Musar masters who've continued to write um, write on this topic.
0: Great. Thank you. And now I'd like you to let our listeners know about the AmericanMussar.com and your website. Um, you know, you have events. This is where people can go on and take the quiz. They can sign up for your email list. Um, you also have a curriculum for parenting, which is interesting, too. So can you talk a little bit about your website and how you're doing your teachings of this?
1: Yeah, so I founded the website about two years ago. And I really wanted to make Musar accessible. I wanted it to be available to the broader Jewish community and the non-Jewish community, people who don't necessarily have um, a lot of Jewish literacy or they don't know Hebrew or are not comfortable with Hebrew. And so my, um, my focus was to really take these teachings and to present like what might be a, a an old teaching, like side by side with a modern example, so that it's something that people can relate and implement in their own lives. So I have a blog, I have uh, the quiz, which, le- which is a really nice entry to kind of get to know about your own spiritual journey. Um, there are uh, mantra cards that people can get, there are book recommendations. And um, about a year ago, I turned my musar practice towards parenting because i had two teenage daughters and you know they can be a little challenging at times wonderful girls but you know i was kind of pulling my hair out so i said okay i need some help i need i need a little help here so the only way the best way for me to do that was by creating some materials and creating a class for this um, because that's how this book came from. It started with a class, and then after three years of the class, I wrote the book. So I said, well, let me see if I can do the same thing for parenting. And then with the curriculum, what I did is I took the class that I'd been teaching, which was picking out the most parent-relevant parts of the book, and then I wrote some Notes so that anyone with just a couple of hours of training could start leading a a MUSAR group um, for parents.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. This was uh, really informative. I really like the simplicity of it. Like I said, it just makes it uh, just feel that you could really like you said just kind of stretch reach take all this information in and it's those small little actions for people to take and to be mindful of i think every time you know the mindfulness aspect of what we do on a daily basis always seems to be very transformative for me you know when people if people buy certain you know books that's like a 40 day course and you know you usually have teachers like yourself that are giving people a mantra to carry throughout your day your day really does change it's very transformative when you are more mindful as you go about your day
1: it really makes a difference i was reading um uh, a book and they were talking about doing the dishes and i hate doing the dishes and i said well just take your full attention to it and notice the warm water and they, you know can kind of become much more a much more pleasant activity and it's like oh wow these dishes are clean now and it can <laughs> transform what's, you know, really mundane, you know, could be like an act of drudgery or it could be something which is kinda cool and interesting.
0: Yeah, I also think that this would be a great book um, for a book club, you know, for a group of people to get together. I I mean, my mind as being a teacher, it goes to a 13 week course, you know, that could be taught and, you know, each week you have the group or a book club just working on the first trait, then going to the second week, working on the second trait, you know, maybe, um, you know, obviously, like you said, once you cycle through the 13, you start from the beginning again, because I can also see where people, you know, might be a little hard on themselves If they've, they've worked on, you know, the humility, the patience, the enthusiasm, um, then maybe they get to the trust and then they realize in that day that they're trusting, but they're a little less patient, you know, it's like, oh, darn, you know, I'm working on trust, but I really wasn't patient in the moment. So I, I really see how, you know, if you're cycling through these 13 traits and building upon and building upon them and going back that, you know, it makes sense how it would begin to balance out a little bit more for people if you're practicing it thoroughly.
1: Yeah, no, That's a great example. And that's um, something a lot of the times there is crossover and things like that. And also by cycling through, we kind of get away from that bias, you know, with a person who said, I'm really patient. Well, no, actually, you're not really patient. And if you just pick and chose which ones you were going to work on, maybe you'd skip one that was really, really important to you. And sometimes you think I'm really bad at something and then you start to practice it and you realize you're actually really good at it. Right. And, the, you know, so by going through all of them, you learn so much. You learn so much about yourself and you learn just new wrinkles on things that, that um, you know, Rabbi Elia Lopian said that Musar is teaching the heart what the head already understands. So a lot of these concepts are really new. But how we actually do that, like everybody knows oh, I should be generous. But how do you become generous? That's a totally different story. It doesn't do any good to beat yourself up and say, God, I really got to be more generous and giving. You know, it doesn't work. Yeah, it's
0: bringing these traits more into your being. Like you said, there's one thing to know them, but it's another thing to be them.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly.
0: Well, thank you so much, Greg, for a wonderful interview. And let our listeners know uh, the easiest way to
1: get a hold of this book. Right. So, uh, probably the easiest way to get the book is just to go to, uh, amazon.com and search for the spiritual practice of good actions or Greg Marcus, and, um, you'll find the book and order it, but you can also get it in many bookstores, uh, many libraries, uh, uh also carry it.
0: Great. And we'll be sure to put those links in our show notes. Well, thanks for spending, uh, this time with us, Greg and, uh, much luck to all that you're doing and thank you so much for enlightening us today.
1: You're very welcome April it was a it was a lot of fun to be here.
0: If you want more information about our films, visit our website, path11productions.com, to purchase DVDs or to rent and stream each film. You can also find our trilogy of films on iTunes, Amazon Prime, and Gaia.com. You can still use our smartphone app for both Android and iPhones. Just search for Path 11 in the Google Play App Store, or if on an iPhone, look for Path 11 in the iOS App Store. Catch you next time!